2: so it's monday and uh fee is back from her restful holiday
0: (laughs) (laughs) well it's quite wasn't entirely restful we didn't go very far uh we went to the cotswolds uh Beautiful part of England, kind of southern England, a little bit in the middle. And that's for our international audience, Jane. Absolutely, for the internet. But
2: vast and varied international audience. And
0: it was very, 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 very bucolic. Well, do you want to
2: try to describe the Cotswolds for people who genuinely. Is it, would it be fair to say it's the ultimate
0: cliched English? England. Well it is but they've decided not to use that as a slogan. (laughs) I can't think why not. By the way I got fired from a job in an advertising agency. (laughs) (laughs) So it's bucolic England I think at its best. So the River Thames runs through quite a lot of the Cotswolds so you have an undulating uh, rural landscape it's not hilly or mountainous no. at all and it is the site of lots of those very very beautiful uh sand-colored stone villages mm. that's what defines the Cotswolds isn't it yes uh, before you get to a couple of miniature villages that are there we used to go to those a lot uh, and I think it's there there's a big water park there now isn't there as I don't well. know. And the big towns are quintessentially British. So they'll have a high street uh, with a couple of pubs on either mm-hmm. side. It's quite, it's quite posh. Yes, Elements I was going to say. The Cotswolds are quite posh. You can get a
2: meal in a pub for Ooh. 40 or 50 quid. Super.
0: There'll be a lot of organic wine being sold at the moment. Uh, Quite a lot of sourdough will be available to you at every meal. And we've seen you coming farm shops. Very much so. Uh, But it's also, um, it's got a rural beauty to it that I really love. So I'm not going to knock the Cotswolds. So there was one night when my daughter and I um, were sitting outside and uh, the grass had just been mown in the church graveyard next door to where we were staying Mm. and uh, it was so beautiful the bats were swooping down you could just see you know the dying embers of the sun across a long low horizon it was absolutely beautiful and then Jane. someone was murdered <laughs> no that didn't happen oh uh, well it sure would normally wouldn't it <laughs> well it, it could be the start of something because the midsummer murders are very <laughs> much I mean. in the Cotswolds. so you didn't see any giant cheeses heading in your direction or anything like that no right? we didn't and we had some really lovely food and you know it was, it was lovely actually there's a lot to be said for uh, i'm not you can't call it a staycation can you people get annoyed a staycation appeared to mean that you literally stayed in your home but Mm. it was misinterpreted wasn't it oh yeah people went to to margate and then said they were on a staycation yes genuine
2: uh, question did you see any men in those very distinctive red slightly pink trousers
0: well it's funny you should say that so we did see one gentleman striding out of a morning uh, in a pink short but it was that dark pink tailored yes uh, so definitely some pleats, I think, along the waist area. Okay. Uh, so that would be the summer version of the long, long pink trouser. Yeah, I think it would be. Yeah. I was in... Uh, but about... if you're seeking to deride this not part of the all. country, Jane, no, no I... I'd rather you wouldn't. I'm not. No. Because yeah. it really was very beautiful. Yeah, very, yeah. very beautiful. It is lovely. Yeah, it is lovely. I, I do prefer rugged. Do you? Yeah, I do. I
2: prefer rugged to man- manicured. But, I yeah, can I can appreciate the beauty. You're right about the sandstone, they're gorgeous. But I was in an Italian restaurant the other night and um, a man, uh, shall we say, of a certain vintage, with a very particular sort of confidence, came striding in and said, uh, the kitchen was closed and the lady in charge couldn't have made it clearer. She said, I just want a bowl of pasta. I just want pasta too. Just uh, tell. One of those voices that, you know, he was so posh, he couldn't completely make himself understood is a little bit like miriam margley's impersonation of a posh person
0: and he you know
2: he he got one now i mean if i were to go into that restaurant and say oh could i possibly no the kitchen is closed and i would say oh and i would take my leave but when you've got that kind of inbuilt certainty about what you're entitled to you get your pasta.
0: I think you would get your pasta. I don't know. I would I, beg to differ on no, this. If
2: the lady tells me the kitchen is closed
0: I would have beaten a retreat. I'm not sure about but that. But not my new friend. Actually oh, no. no because we were where, where did we get stuck once and the kitchen had closed. And <laughs> oh, God, we've been stuck in several places. Hey, <laughs> on why no. uh, and Harrogate. Harrogate. It was yeah. Harrogate where the kitchen was we, closed. And we there had was all kinds a, of nonsense going down there but we did. We, we won in the end well, didn't we, we? Oh no because we had to get a,
2: a oh, delivery, delivery. Get and a delivery. we couldn't <laughs> eat it in the bar even though there was no one Else in there, we had to go down to the yeah. billion oh, in the you're basement
0: right, because you you didn't lift a finger for that. What?
2: <laughs> I didn't enter into the argument. No, no. you didn't. No, because I'm too shy and I don't like confrontation. In IRL. Yes. Okay.
0: But we did get fed in the end, didn't we? But. Uh... <laughs> We weren't very welcome, that's for sure. (laughs) But we've nothing against Harrogate. No, we've got nothing against Harrogate, but it wasn't quite... We have a bit. It wasn't quite the Northern Welcome that might be on their tourist posters. No, it wasn't the Northern Welcome we got in, for example,
2: Chester. Chester. (laughs) Well, we got lost in on the one-way system, oh, but the okay. people were lovely.
0: Fun times on tour, kids. Yeah. Fun times. Oh, yeah. I never joined but the look, Stones. But look, you've had a great week. I know this. I saw a little clip of you pop up. You're having a little bit of a flirt with no. David Tennant. Uh, no. I know. Uh, that wasn't flirting. <laughs> you did. You got no. your dimples out for a Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> actually, <laughs> you did.
2: I genuinely, because he's 52, something I put to him, which I'm not sure he was entirely... Um, pleased to hear although he was very charming um and uh he does look amazing for 52 and but he wasn't particularly giving on the beauty tip front because I'm genuinely if I see someone who just looks amazing and their skin is utterly clear I just would like to know if they use an ointment. Do you remember when we asked Greg James and he favored oh.
0: Hawaiian Tropic? Yes, he? well he favored a moisturizer that had a slight little self tan in That's it. That's right. And he yeah. was happy to be honest about totally it. Totally honest and we loved him for it. Yeah, so I was hoping
2: for a little bit a little bit of that from my new showbiz pal David. Yeah. That, uh,
0: didn't come no. but but you definitely uh, you were having a nice nice little rapport <laughs> oh, he's
2: a very good actor
0: <laughs> very good actor had he seen
2: your review uh, I mentioned no I not only had he I, I mentioned it to him I said I'd seen Staged and to, <laughs> to, to quote my Perhaps slight lapse uh, on the radio show. I did say to him that I'd found it insufferable, <laughs> yeah, and what he was did he, say? he was kind enough to laugh along. His PR lady looked a bit shifty, but uh, but he was all right about it. He uh, we went on to have a discussion about the persona of actors. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh yes. Anyway, I've had some devastating news just what? in the last couple of minutes.
0: Oh gosh! Well, we had a big, big guest tomorrow. You've done all of the work. Yeah, You've well, gone to see the show. I've been to
2: see aspects of love. Yep. And can I just say that
0: was, although I did say last week,
2: and I mean it, the staging was magnificent, the performances are impeccable, costumes are superb. You took one for the team. Oh, I find <laughs> was taking one for the team because the, the plot is rubbish. And I think that's OK because other people have said it. It's incredibly dated and it features a man shooting a woman. And then the character played by Michael Ball deciding that that signifies that the couple belong together. She wasn't dead, by the way, it was merely a graze. But I put it to you that in the 21st century, if a man has shot a woman, you don't necessarily think that means they should belong together for all time. Anyway, several other twists and turns in what was an utterly deluded plot. I mean, it was completely crazy. But the terrible news this afternoon is that Michael Ball has pulled out. Yeah, well, he's lost his voice. Well, he's having problems with his voice, and I think that does happen to people when they're in long runs of shows, and they don't want to risk it for a biscuit by doing a, you know, a, nine, yeah. a nineteen-minute interview with the likes of us. But well, it's a I, shame, though.
0: We were only allowed thirteen minutes anyway. Was it so, only thirteen? Yeah, it was thirteen, okay. um, and we could have done some of it with mime. <laughs> he could have done. Yes. I wanted to ask him a question
2: about what is the most inane line he has had to sing in a show because Aspects of Love does contain some very daffy bits that could have been spoken but are in fact sung instead and it is things like what time does the bus leave from the main station (laughs) and stuff like that. So I just, it would have been, anyway... There's the question. If anybody else wants it, wants to use it, I was hoping you'd sing for me. so yeah, but... no, that would have been lovely. Yeah, it's not. Do you know happen.
0: what? Just on that tip, uh, we were listening to Alita Adams' "Get Here," which is a beautiful, oh, that's beautiful a great song, song. Came yeah. on the radio the other night. Yeah, um, and it did. It's got a fantastic rhyming couplet.
2: Oh, I know. Caravan yeah. rhyming with Arab man. Yeah, Arab man and caravan. Yeah, <laughs> I. That was on the list. Cross the desert like an Arab man. It was. I can't remember whether it was a song we played a lot during the first Gulf War on local radio or it was a song that we were banned from playing on local radio.
0: Gosh, the... it's quite telling if it's not the latter or um, if it is the latter, actually. Uh, because I
2: was working in Herefordshire and Worcestershire, obviously the SAS are in Hereford and um, so we would have had listeners with links to what was what was going on and I seem to remember that that was a song we sort of adopted as a kind of, we're thinking of you.
0: Get Um, here if you can. Get here if you can, yeah. But I I could be completely wrong. It's incredibly mournful, isn't it? Yeah. Beautifully sung.
2: It's a lovely song, that. And I don't think Alita Adams had another hit, did she? Not as big as that, no. No, great
0: singer, fantastic voice. Do you know what? Those lists are always worth trying to get your hands on, actually, the stuff um, on music stations that gets banned in war Mm. or any types of emergency, actually, because people put so much thought into it. Mm. Uh, And, you know, rightly so, I suppose. If you're tasked with drawing up a list of songs that may have offensive lyrics, you might as well put some welly into it. But equally, I think there are lots and lots of times when people are just listening to the radio for the tune. They're not really triggered by a bad rhyming couplet they don't they don't
2: listen you see i think if you're interested in words you and i are both keen on words we always pick things up don't we
0: yeah which i don't think other people are because the all time no. classic is the um the first cut is the deepest is always taken off any playlist uh if there is uh, any kind of accident involving mm. large numbers of people in hospital and i don't think people hear that in the song
2: no i think you're right
0: yeah so stuff like that it's just a bit oh,
2: thank goodness the return of good sense has come uh, to this podcast um, a few things just from last week
0: yes oh yes well
2: well we'll talk about uh, yeah. Hugh Edwards in a moment because I know you want to say something about that um, but Diana Bird was uh, you know I kept going on about that programme on Channel 4 about uh, evacuation yeah. yeah. so we got Diana Bird who is the RAF squadron leader on last week's programme and Cathy just says what an amazing interview thank you for covering this what an incredible woman showcasing the work of our service personnel. Um Diana was remarkable and so were her young colleagues, and they were so young, some of the young men and women she was working with out in Kabul. And um uh, there was another email actually that said, I would like to have known a little bit more about her family life. Was she able to have a family or was she somebody who was just totally devoted to the RAF? And I, I can't answer those questions, I don't know. And actually, she was with somebody from the uh, Ministry of Defence, and I, I got the impression that although we could I certainly wasn't Told that there were no questions about what happened in Kabul that I, I that I couldn't ask. Um, I must have I simply didn't think to ask her about the rest of her life, um, and I apologise if that was an omission. But it was it was very much about her working life. To be fair, that interview. yes,
0: and not everybody's happy to disclose their personal details, are they?
2: So. No that's true and I certainly wouldn't have wanted wouldn't have wanted to put her on the spot. Um Caroline's in Devon but she's from Hampshire originally Fee. Um Fee also went welcome, to my welcome, old school. Welcome welcome welcome. Fee went to my old school and it seems we share a devotion to Mrs Rankin she says. Triple welcome again. Um Caroline is mentioning the uh interview that The piece, not the interview, the piece that Anthony Lloyd did for the Saturday Times magazine. Um, I have the pleasure of knowing Anthony, Anthony, says Caroline, and think he would make a fantastic guest on your programme. He is fluent and engaging and hugely informed. OK, well, we'll see if we can do that, Caroline, because I agree with you. Anthony wrote an article for the magazine over the weekend about, it was so sad, it was about Ukrainian women really not able to find the bodies of their husbands after after uh, they have served in combat and then been killed. And it was a really insightful and very moving piece about the, frankly, the not especially good Ukrainian bureaucracy, the, the domestic authorities in Ukraine like a lot of authorities in like a lot of countries, are not actually terribly good. Um, and obviously they're dealing with very difficult circumstances, but it doesn't sound as though they have been hugely helpful to women who just want to find out where their husbands are uh, and give them a funeral. So it was a really, really sad, sad article. Mm. And actually Anthony made the point in it that um, we do spend a lot of time Discussing Russian deaths, but there have been so many Ukrainian deaths as well. And really, we just want this over, don't we?
0: Yeah, well, they do more than we do. Well, quite. Um, uh, I didn't quite understand this uh, email, and I don't want to go over lots of old ground from last week because that would be very tedious. Uh, But I just like what it said. Uh, Sarah says, I really liked your listeners' email on Wednesday. When my eldest went to school, the parents in her class were generally my age with older children, plus I was only working part-time, so I felt much more included in the class. But they weren't the kind of people to go out. My younger child's class are all a decade younger than me, and I work full-time now post a divorce. I felt like I had nothing in common with those parents and wasn't invited on nights out. I always thought that primary school was when I would meet friends for life But sadly, that's not the case. I'm still looking for friends. Uh, My heart went out to you a little bit, Sarah, and I presume you're having a conversation about... Which bits of life you best fit into? Were you doing something like that?
2: That was because one of the guests last week was Catherine Faulkner, who'd written that book called The Other Mothers, which was partially, although not entirely, about the atmosphere around playgroups and playgrounds and the mothers you connect with and the ages they are, the ages you are, um, and just the difficulties around making connections when you might be, from different sorts of life experience and different ages. Yeah. And we had some interesting emails from people who'd moved to different areas of the country, to rural settings, and had really struggled to make connections in the playground with other, specifically with other mothers. Mm. Um, because I think it is hard if you, in fact, funnily enough, we interviewed Lisa Jewell today, didn't we? The really nice writer.
0: Brilliant writer. I mean, she writes
2: quite twisty turny books I should say but a charming woman and her book which we're going to feature on the program in a couple of weeks is about two women meeting around their 45th birthdays and Lisa made the point that your life at 45 can be very different depending on if you had children or when you had them so your children could be 20 or older or they might only be six and it, your lives at 45 will be very, very different on that basis. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I just love that point about um, the one that Sarah's making uh, about older children and younger children, because I think that's often the case as well, uh, that you just establish your friendship group with only one of your kids, friends, parents, mm. not both of them. Yeah. And it's and it's quite a, a kind of um it's quite a firm line actually. Mm. It's quite weird. Mm. So nice observation, Sarah, and I really hope that you find your tribe. I'm sure you will. Yeah. And the fact that you haven't yet find found your tribe just means that you're staying true to who you want to be really. Because at some stage in life you will find your tribe. And I always feel a little bit sorry for people whose tribe was uh, you know, school friends or university friends, because there's something quite fun, actually, about finding a tribe a bit later in life, I think. Mm, yeah. And, it, and it, it'll it happen. It really will. Um, now, we did talk... Uh, Fee wasn't
2: here last week. We did talk, at uh, Jane Mulcairins and I, uh, about Hugh Edwards. And there have been a few emails um, specifically about what I said. So I just want to read one of them from Sharon, who is a qualified counsellor for young people and adults, so she knows her stuff. Uh, I just wanted to pick up Jane, pick up on something Jane said regarding Hugh Edwards and depression. It felt as if the implication was that being a journalist wouldn't be anywhere near as stressful as being involved in the airlift operation in Kabul, for example. And therefore, if anyone was going to suffer from depression, it would probably be more likely if you were involved in this second profession. Uh, when we look in from the outside, we may wonder why someone would be depressed when other people appear to have a more stressful profession, etc. But there are many factors that can cause an individual to develop profession, depression. I'm sorry, including life-changing events, family history, etc. etc. It's how we internalize our feelings and our ability and capacity. To think logically and rationally, Hugh Edwards may appear to have a less stressful profession than others, but we don't know how his stress responders work. We don't know his personality traits, how critical he is of himself, or high or or how sorry, or how high or low his self-esteem is. We don't know his vulnerabilities or what his triggers may be. Um, no, good point, Sharon. Thank you very much. I certainly didn't mean to be uh, insensitive, but if it came across that way, and as I say, several people have mentioned it, then I am very sorry. Uh, and Sharon, as I say, is a counsellor.
0: Well, I'm sure it was a very difficult news week uh, for everybody, because there's something quite weird, isn't it, when something happens to people who you have known, you know, no matter if you haven't known them all that well, uh, it's quite a different prism to look at things through. Uh, So I have very, very little of, uh, you know, anything uh, even approaching wisdom to add to all of those discussions about Hugh Edwards. I think I'll do that thing where I'm wishing everybody well, uh, just in a physical and mental sense, really. Uh, Faye says, a couple of weeks ago, Fee mentioned she'd been watching a show on Amazon called Deadlock. Don't go for Deadlock, the one ending CK, you need Deadlock the one ending CH. I took her up on her suggestion and boy did I love it. I feel it's going a bit under the radar as an incredible piece of feminism, half hidden in a very funny comedy. Selfishly, I'd like it to get a second season. An interview with the creators known as the two kates that's McLennan and McCartney would be amazing and hopefully spread the word of this A Star comedy drama. I'm delighted you liked it, Fay. I thought it was just remarkable, actually. I don't Where know. I find it. this. It's on Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's set in Tasmania, and it's just you know how we always talk about how horrible it is that at so many dramas start with the body of a beautiful young woman yeah. dead in the woods. Has she been raped? <sighs> oh, okay. Off we go. Uh, this is completely the opposite, and I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but it's about men <laughs> being uh, rather put upon and not surviving the incidents. Uh, mm. But it's really darkly funny um, in quite. Quite an eyebrow raising way uh, I would give it what you call a hard recommend hard recommend yeah yeah uh, and I think um You've really got to allow yourself to laugh all the way through. I'm pretty sure that's what the writers are hoping that you'll do, do. Okay. Uh, and I would very much recommend it. But also, I'm really enjoying Hijack at the moment. Which just the latest. My
2: sister keeps wittering on about it. Idris
0: Elba vehicle, and you did say, "Oh, I'm not sure that I want to watch it because it's all a bit same. It's just lots of people stuck on a plane." And I mean, it absolutely is lots of people it is. exactly. There you yeah. go stuck on a plane. It's very good, James. It's very, very good. It's got Eve Miles in it as well. Mm. Yeah, give it a go. The Welsh Actress. Yes. And Idris Elba. Yes.
1: Oh, OK. Yeah. Mm.
0: I started Becoming
2: Elizabeth, the Tudor romp. Yeah. Um, about Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, and I've, I have enjoyed, I've watched two episodes on preview of World on Fire, the BBC's World War II programme. which a terrifically ambitious attempt to tell the story of World War II Right across the world, so the impact on a whole range of people. Uh, and I have to say, it's, uh, it's the second series. I've more or less totally forgotten the first because it finished in 2019 and quite a lot's happened since. But they've gone back to it. Leslie Manville is in it. She's always good in everything and she's brilliant in this.
0: So you've gone very historical. So I have gone, yes. I'm sticking contemporary. I'm not sure that I can watch... Another Elizabethan drama Well, I'm ever. slightly with you. Because I can't read another thing about Henry VIII. I don't no. want to go and see Six of the Musical. No. I'd like someone to really focus on one of those incredibly boring kings or queens who just never really surfaces in our history. Uh, well, name one. I can't because they're so it's hidden. So dull. just can't be bothered. <laughs> um, I, you've I, been talking about penny farthings. I don't want to go there. Right. It's so odd. They're so strange. Don't give them the oxygen of publicity.
2: Have you heard about this? I'm completely with this. Um, It's from Claire, this email. I'm forwarding our press release relating to our protest at a bar, which is opening in Southsea in Portsmouth. Uh, The bar is going to be called Ripper & Co, and the logo of the the pub has a knife in place of the letter I. I think this bar is in extremely bad taste and does nothing for local campaigns trying to stop violence against women and girls. Uh, We've got a petition on change.org, which has over 500 signatures, um, and there's obviously quite a spirited campaign going on uh, in South Sea to stop this opening. Um, I'm not sure we're really allowed to support campaigns, except, of course, we both support it. And why on earth does anybody think that's a good idea? It's just stupid, isn't it? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's. Because you don't have style. to do that. No. You're quits. not keeping up some else. kind of a tradition or something. So, no. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, I live opposite a pub that's got, uh, it's called the Prince George, that mm-hmm. has got, uh, you know, one of the swinging pub signs. Um, I don't, it can't possibly be the original, but it's of uh, Prince George, who was, you know, quite a, a man of the night uh, with a, a woman, maybe of the night, mm-hmm. uh, basically uh, sitting almost astride him, having her bottom slapped. And sometimes when I wander past that, I think, time for a change.
2: Time for a change. Yeah, well. <laughs> It is a bit odd, isn't it? It's quite
0: strange. Mm. Uh, can I just say uh, that Jane and I disagree over the book club book? Uh, yeah. We're going to talk about Valerie Perrin's Freshwater for Flowers on the 27th, I think, See, of July. I um, So I started off when
2: I was bored and then I sort of got into it and I, I thought I was going to be charmed by it and then I'm afraid I just lost interest again. I'm sure it's me and not the book. I really am. It's me, not you. <laughs> it's Valerie, if you're listening, which we know you're not, because you don't speak English, because um, you don't have to, because you're a wildly successful French writer. Uh, yeah, Sorry,
0: I want to, I really wanted to enjoy it. I'm loving it. Well, just tell me what happens at the end. Absolutely really. loving it. So she's got chapter headings, uh, and the chapters are really short, and I appreciate that, Valerie, because I can say, you know, I'll just do one more before bed, and it's only a page and a half long. Uh, and uh, chapter 42, 42... Uh, love is when you meet someone who gives you news about yourself. Is that a beautiful thing to say? Mm. I really enjoy it. Is it? I'm really no. Well, I. You see, this is it's books are always revealing. So when you about meet someone, the and they say them. you've got ketchup on your shirt, <laughs> no, that's not what she means. She's not what she means. It's not what she means. Um it reminds me of that lovely, lovely Anne Tyler. Quote, which is um, I can't remember which book it's in, but it's not that she loved him. It's she loved how she felt about herself when she was was with him. him. Oh yes, I think which is a beautiful. Is that the accidental marriage? It might be, Mm. but I I'm enjoying Valerie for the little nuggets of that that she drops in. But it is like a great. It's like a very very long French lunch Mm. of a book, Mm. Uh, and quite a lot of it is about the kind of style of her writing more than the substance of the plot. But I am very much enjoying that. Well, I'm, it's interesting that we, haven't, we do have
2: such differing views, so it will make the book club even more interesting. Won't it? it? Possibly could be. (laughs) It'll
0: have a little bit Um, of dynamism about it. I
2: really would like to hear from people living through the extreme heat in parts of Europe at the moment, and indeed the States. If that's you, um, we'd very much welcome your input over the next couple of days. Just let us know. It's very simple. What is it like? Uh, Jane and Fee at Times.Radio. We are so fortunate in Britain in any number of ways, Um, not least with our benign summer weather uh, so far. So we have uh, an interview for you to listen to uh, today. And this is very, very serious stuff it's by its features the times journalist sean o'neill who's been doing a lot of work about the crisis in the coroner's courts in england and wales And, and quite simply the problem is that inquests are being delayed in some cases for over Two years. And let's face it, most of us don't know much about the coroner's courts or inquests because we're never likely to be involved in one. But if you are, because your life has taken an unexpected and perhaps tragic turn, you really want the inquest to be over as soon as possible. So you get answers. And so improvements can be made based on the findings of the inquest. So Sean has a particular and very personal interest in this because his daughter Maeve died in 2021. Uh, He told me all about her. I should say she was only 27.
3: My daughter Maeve, um, Maeve Bernadette Boothby O'Neill, to give her a full title, died of severe ME uh, in October 2021. She'd been admitted to hospital three times in the last seven months of her life. Um, with growing complications, she was bedbound, immobile, malnourished. Um, basically, the ME had become so severe that she couldn't chew and digest food. It was too debilitating for her body. And um, the hospital uh, in Exeter was really unable to help her. Um, There were procedures that we felt as a family should have been tried and I'm talking specifically about uh, tube feeding um, into the stomach. Um, The hospital was unwilling to try those for various reasons um, which is one of the reasons we hope an inquest will do an enhanced investigation into this. Um, And yeah, uh, may have died at home in Exeter. Um, after being ill for a very long time. And she had, there was the possibility of a fourth admission, but she didn't want to do that. It was, she felt the hospital couldn't help her, wouldn't help her. And she took a very courageous decision, in my view, um, to die at home. They did mental health assessments to see which this an irrational decision, but concluded she was very articulate and very... I mean, she could barely speak, but she was able to communicate her wishes quite clearly. That she didn't feel the medical profession could help her, and she wanted to die at home, surrounded by the people who loved her most.
2: And an inquest is something that most of us, because we're fortunate people, don't know very much about. How would an inquest into her death help?
3: In many ways, Jen, I don't think it will help because it won't bring her back. Um, It can't bring her back, obviously. What it could help is provide some learning, identify if there were any systemic failures in the treatment of Maeve in particular, but also learning for other patients. I, I believe there are thousands of people with ME and severe ME living in the UK, uh, I think long COVID is a very, very similar disease in many cases, not all cases, but in in quite a few, um, post-viral similarities. Um, And I think that I know there is no guidance in the NHS at all for the treatment of severe ME in hospital or by GPs in the community. And an inquest can't provide all the answers, but it could provide some steps that could lead to improvements. I mean, there has been another case since May have died in Exeter and I know the hospital has done some things differently. Now, Whether that's a result of publicity or whether a result of learning within the hospital already, I'm not clear. But I think we need an inquest to have a a public airing of some of these issues.
2: And I know you have spoken to other parents who... Are waiting in a similar fashion for inquest to take place, and we'll, we'll talk about some of those examples a little bit later, if you don't mind. But Emmy is something that puzzles a lot of people. Uh, when did Maeve become ill? How, how did it all start?
3: Um, I first, when I look back now, um, Maeve, I remember picking her up from school one time. Uh, her and her, uh, her mum and I had separated from Maeve it was five or six. And I used to visit routinely at weekends uh, and um, picked her up from school one time when she was about 13 and she'd fainted doing cross-country running. And that was the first indication. When I look back, I can see that she would get these dizzy spells and and be really tired and fatigued and, and that progressed. She wasn't formally diagnosed with ME until she was... 18 in 2012. Um, and it is a difficult illness. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around it. Um, and I find there's a lot of obstinacy in the medical profession about it. They. they They don't know, they don't recognise it, they can't find, there are no diagnostic markers, there's no obvious, you're diagnosed by a process of elimination, basically. So they can't tell physically what causes it, they can't test for it, and they have no treatments for it. And, And the way it has been treated until recently, in fact, the way it is still treated, because the new guidelines have not been enforced, is... A combination of CBT, talking therapies, and graded exercise therapies based on the idea that this is a behavioral or psychological illness. I think that's false. I think that's an example of the medical establishment not having sufficient knowledge of what this disease is and therefore replacing it with a set of assumptions about patients and about their carers. Um, the parents of people with ME have a very difficult time from schools and local authorities and, and the medical profession. But,
2: um, in and Maeve's I would say, case,
3: if I could just say it, yeah. in, in, in Maeve's case, I understand why people, especially doctors on the front line, don't know what's going on because for years I was sceptical. And if I'm honest, my scepticism about ME and what was wrong with Maeve i you know i i I used to think it was this was some sort of psychological kind of trauma, but delayed trauma from her parents' divorce or something like that, and that damaged my relationship with her quite significantly um, especially when she became ill and she was unable to see anyone and was housebound and 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 thought that rest and relaxation would help her recovery. I found that incredibly difficult. And our our relationship was fractured by the illness and by my understanding or misunderstanding of the illness.
2: In um, the case of Maeve's GP, um, I know not every GP is sympathetic, but Maeve's GP, I think, was concerned, and and they were concerned enough to write to the coroner after she died. Mm
3: -hmm. That was her last GP, and for a very short period, And I think of all the GPs she saw... This lady was the only one who seemed to understand that there was something significant wrong because she had a good connection with me. If she could see, she was an intelligent, a really intelligent, bright young woman um, who was not feigning illness or malingering in any way.
2: And so something should have happened, shouldn't it? In fact, something did happen, to be fair. An inquest was
3: opened. Mm-hmm
2: in a relatively reasonable length of time. T- tell me about that. The,
3: the, the, the process of opening an inquest is basically a formality. The 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 GP reported the death. The coroner opened the inquest and then immediately adjourned it um, to gather evidence. Uh, we then had a pre-inquest review about 11 months later in September 2022. And since then, there's been nothing Um We still haven't had full disclosure of evidence and we haven't um, got a date for the coroner wants a second pre-inquest hearing. That hasn't happened yet. I think they're having difficulties identifying. The coroner wants an expert witness and I think they're having difficulties identifying someone to do that. So my feeling is a full inquest, which could take a week or so, is probably a long way off yet.
2: How long? You've waited a period of years now. So might it be another year?
3: my expectation is it will be at least another year
1: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress
3: uh, it's a it's a t-shirt
1: until you tried it on same goes for your healthcare
2: We've been talking to The Times journalist Sean O'Neill, who's been writing about the problems in the coroner's court system across England and Wales. In some cases, the bereaved are having to wait for more than a couple of years to get the inquest held and to get the answers they really need. So I asked Sean if the delays in the system were caused by the pandemic.
3: There is an element of this that is a post-COVID problem. During the pandemic, coroner's courts were shut down. Um, and even Zoom hearings were restricted because I think there's a quirk of the law, the coronial law that says everybody else can appear by Zoom but the coroner has to be in court. So there were a lot of problems holding any inquests um, during the pandemic and of course there was an increased number of deaths reported to coroners that required investigation. So there's a backlog, a natural backlog there but there are very chronic problems in this system it's a a tangled complicated structure that is no one's priority
2: well uh, it's a sort of cinderella service isn't it but local councils are quite pivotal here
3: local councils provide the funding but in recent years that that you've had a process of merging council areas so i think there are now about 82 council areas and they're kind of amalgamations of local councils the coroner It's, for example, in Devon. It is the Devon coroner, covers a huge area in which there are multiple um, local authorities. So they provide the funding. The coroners are judges, and therefore appointed by the Lord Chief Justice. And in many cases, the investigating officers, the coroner's staff, coroner's officers, are from the police service. So you have this kind of three-cornered hat um, and... If you get a dispute, you can have people pulling in three different directions.
2: And the more complicated the circumstances, as in the case of of Maeve, the longer you're going to have to wait to make sure everything's in place.
3: That's what appears to be the the other families that I've spoken to have all got quite complex cases, quite often involving hospitals or mental health hospitals. um, And those are quite often... Inquests that are deemed Article 2, so the obligation of the state to protect life comes into play. It, it requires enhanced investigation by a coroner. And the more complex cases seem to take longer and longer and longer.
2: And uh, is there any concern on your part that this allows or might facilitate a cover-up?
3: I think I wouldn't say cover-up. My concern is is more that what happens over a period of time is that witnesses forget things documents get lost um witnesses are uncontactable you know um the longer the period between the death and, and the when the inquest should happen and it actually happening then basically the evidence degrades and also if there are systemic lessons to be learned either in Maeve's case or in other cases the lessons aren't, the reforms aren't put into practice, are they? You know, so lawyers and and campaigners I've spoken to say you get the same mistakes being made again and again leading to further deaths because lessons aren't learned. And I hate that phrase, lessons will be learned. I've been a journalist for so long now. Every time I hear lessons will be learned, I raise my eyebrows and go, yeah, but they're not.
2: well and of course as as you you point out uh, the longer people have to wait the less likely it is that there will be any lessons learned um so tell me about some of the other people you've spoken to who are also in a similar
3: position to your own i I spoke to one woman um who wanted to be anonymous who has been waiting four years for an inquest for her daughter who died in in a mental health hospital and um she, the cor- coroner, ordered a jury inquest, but the local council said, oh, we can't provide a room for that. We haven't got a facility big enough. So that was it kind of waiting and waiting. And her lawyers, I think it was Lee Day were her lawyers, eventually had to threaten judicial review proceedings before they got any movement on that. And an inquest has now been scheduled for, for later this summer. Mm. Uh, and I also spoke to the father of a young man called Lane McGinnity, who who... Died in another in a private mental health unit, his father peter um he put it really i thought really succinctly he said um, he doesn't want closure, he doesn't expect closure from an inquest, but an inquest is a milestone, and it's something his family's desperate to get over with. you know they've done a lot of work. Um, a lot of research they 've read a lot of documents and reports and disclosed evidence, and they have to read and reread the note their son left and it's all very traumatic and and that's what I find as well what looms up at you is that you are going to have to go into a courtroom, a public courtroom, and relive the death of your loved one in minute detail at some point. And that's incredibly distressing to even contemplate, never mind go through. So when families talk about the need for the inquest, that's what it is. It's, It's something to do with... It feels like your grieving process has been abruptly halted, like it's frozen in time until you get this done, until you get this hearing.
2: And when you speak to people... In the process are they sympathetic are they embarrassed what's their
3: attitude well I, I spoke to the chief coroner the other day for for this piece and he is sympathetic i mean he said he he's dealing with it he's trying to modernize a system that is in many ways way behind the times um so he's working very hard to do that and he's toured the whole country visiting coroners and and their staff and he's he paints a picture while saying he's making progress and, and, and he's hopeful and he's optimistic and working really hard, he does paint quite a depressing picture of crumbling buildings, paint peeling off the walls, leaking ceilings, uh, backlogs that leave coroner staff in tears. You know, he spoke to one coroner's officer who just said, just burst into floods of tears and, and what they keep saying to him is, we just want to help the families. But I feel that this is nobody's priority. It's not a Ministry of Justice priority. It's, it's not a local authority priority. I mean, the local authority budgets are so stretched already. I'm sure the coroner's service is, you know, bottom of the pile. So, you know, there is a, there is a, a massive human cost to all these delays and all this neglect of, of the system.
2: And I, I guess for the majority of the general public, this is something they don't know much about and probably won't ever have to play a a part in it, if they're lucky. But of course, none of us know. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, do we? No,
3: and there were, you know, the figures are quite stark. So 2017, there were 378 inquests that have been open for two years or more. Today, it's 1,760. And I'm sure next year it'll be higher again. Um, So it is impacting more and more people all the time.
2: That is Sean O'Neill, who's a journalist at The Times. Now, if you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in that interview, you can email feedback at times.radio and then you'll be put in touch with the relevant support services.
0: So that's it from us for today. It's lovely to be back off uh, will drop again uh, tomorrow evening at the same time, but sadly, not with Michael Ball. As Jane referred to earlier, we've been balled out, haven't we? I I'm going to break it to my school friend, who... Oh, gosh, yes. She was very, very excited, wasn't well, she? Was. she? Yeah. Just to be in the same room with someone who's been on the same Zoom as Michael Ball. She was living for it, I Jane. Think, I think I probably exaggerated and told her I was going to meet him. Oh, OK. Well, I'll have to backtrack on that now as well. Will it make any difference that you've met me?
2: <laughs> that I've met you? Yes. And that I can tell her that she's met me? And yes, yeah, I'm here. I, I've known her since I was 11. I, I don't think... I don't think it is going to make it. going to nudge it along at all. I don't think it's not
0: going to nudge anything. <laughs> no, no. No. Well, right, nice to be back. Uh, yes. So talk to you Good again to tomorrow. Have you. Thank you. Uh, a little bit slow on that one, but yeah. <laughs> Good to have you. <laughs> Good, Good night. Thing. We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout Play Times Radio at it. Uh, You can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app. Whilst you're out and about being extremely busy and you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram
2: account just go on to Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow so in other words we're everywhere
0: aren't we Jane pretty much everywhere. thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon